Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. For her new book, The Sum of Us, on what racism costs us all, Heather McGee journeyed across the country, including to California, documenting the stories of Americans of all races struggling to meet their basic needs as a consequence of what she calls zero-sum thinking, the idea that progress for one racial group has to come at the expense of another. We'll talk with McGee about the role of racism in thwarting efforts like well-funded public schools or affordable health care, and what she learned about a way out of zero-sum thinking. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In the 1950s and 60s, when some towns faced having to racially integrate their whites-only public pools, they drained the pools instead, and nobody could use them. For economic and social policy expert Heather McGee, the act of draining pools and taking them away from everyone rather than let black families swim there exemplifies how racism takes from all of us. And that's the central argument in her new book, The Sum of Us, How Racism Costs Everyone, and how we can prosper together. Heather McGee, welcome to Forum. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you here. And and for this book, you set out to better understand why it was so hard to implement economic and social policies that benefit all of us. And you traveled across the country, including to these cities and towns that chose some 60 years ago to drain their public pools rather than share them with black people. First, can you describe and remind us of the history of these public pools? Because I was really struck by this story. Yeah, it's really, um, in many ways, the building boom in public pools. And we're not talking about like little backyard watering holes here. We're talking about grand resort style public pools that were free and open to all, uh, though in many places and not just in the South, I know, um, they were segregated. But these grand resort style public pools were in some ways a very everyday symbol of a different ethos in the era of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the sort of New Deal era that really began in the 30s of a government commitment to a high standard of living for Americans. Um, it was something that was part of the sort of Americanizing project, uh, sort of to cohere white ethnic immigrants, to 
create a sense of the commons and the public good. And like much of the government public benefits at the time, it, it was whites only um, in many places in the country. I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, where I really spent the most time in engaging with, you know, the sort of aftermath of pool integration. Um, there's a park there that's in the center of town called Oak Park, and it was one of the bigger pools in the region. And when courts threatened integration, um, because Black families were suing and saying, hey, it's our tax dollars too that built these pools, we want to swim as well. The city council of Montgomery voted to close not just the pool, but the entire parks and recreation department. They closed the pools, the parks, and they had, they also even sold off the animals in the zoo. Wow. And they kept the parks and recreation department of Montgomery closed for a decade rather than integrate it. Now this is obviously a massive loss for the white citizens of Montgomery. And I center it, this story in my book, because even after integration, even after in the late 1960s, they finally reopened the Parks and Recreation Department, they never rebuilt the pool. When I went and walked the grounds, Oak Park was really kind of a ghost town. There were more groundskeepers there than there were people enjoying the park. It was this sort of very vivid loss of the commons that is a metaphor for the kinds of public goods that white Americans used to be able to count on that was the winning formula for middle-class security in the 20th century and that the majority of them turned their backs on politically um, with a sudden rightward shift after the civil rights movement. They turned their backs on them, right, when black communities began to say, hey, our tax dollars are supporting these public goods that we are being excluded from. That's exactly right. Um, here's a, a very concrete example. Um, it may come as a surprise to listeners, as it certainly did to me as someone who's been working in economic and public policy for nearly two decades. But um, back in the 1950s and early 60s, two thirds of white Americans believed that the government ought to provide a job for everyone who wanted one, who couldn't find one in the private sector and provide a guaranteed minimum level of income for everyone in the country. These are some pretty radical left-wing ideas today, right? This is, this is, these are socialist ideas today, um, a guaranteed income and a guaranteed job. Um, but it was the majority opinion among two thirds of white Americans uh, until 1960. And this is in a quadrennial survey. And so the next time they asked the question was in 1964. And the support for those job and income guarantees got cut in half from nearly 70% to just 35%. So I saw this in the data and I was like, there, there must be a mistake in the spreadsheet. Um, but it turns out that support for those ideas among white Americans remained low, including to this day. And so I had to ask why, what happened between 1960 and 1964? Well, the March on Washington of 1963, which was not just for integration, but for jobs and freedom, and which included as part of the core demands, those very ideas. Um, the civil rights movement became something that the democratic elites began to champion. Um, the press coverage in 1963 about President Kennedy being on the side of civil rights, you know, was a total um, sort of sea change. Uh, and then of course we know 
that ultimately his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would be the last Democratic president to win the majority of the white vote. After he signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, he said, um, you know, reportedly to Bill Moyers, I think I've just signed, signed away the South. What I don't think he really knew was that he was signing away the majority of white voters for the rest of American history to this day. So you're talking about how the civil rights movement, when basically what it did was widen the pool of people who could get public benefits, support for public benefits basically tanked. That's exactly right. And and why is that, right? I didn't want to take any of this at face value um, because, you know, I could see how someone who grew a white person who grew up in a in an area with in an era in which the government was saying you know there's something so wrong with black people that they can't go to school with your kids they can't drink from the same water fountain as you they can't sit you know in the same seat as you on the bus would see the government suddenly flipping you know really relatively speaking on a dime and then saying you know integration is 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 the way to go would feel betrayed by that government and would, you know, not give up those ideas about the inherent goodness of people of color, um, you know, so quickly. But why is it the case today? Why are white Americans still voting against the party of civil rights? Why is racial resentment, the idea that Black people are getting something unearned um, and unfair, still such a powerful um, set of ideas in the public opinion data? And why is it so correlated with white Americans' views on government spending, even on drilling in the Arctic and raising the minimum wage, all of these progressive economic and, and sort of, you know, even climate change related ideas where you're feeling about Black people and their inherent worth and their industriousness and um, whether or not they're sort of getting something over on you really shapes your opinion about these other big public problems in our society. So ultimately, I realized and I discovered in this journey to write The Sum of Us that it all comes down to a story. Everything we believe comes from a story that we've been told. And this story that I think is really the core story that's holding American progress back, that's making us dysfunctional, is a zero-sum story. The idea that progress for people of color has to come at the expense of white people. A dollar in my pocket means a dollar less in yours. That's the core problem. And if you look at, you know, if you do a map of the media landscape and of the political stories that politicians tell, you know, on the conservative side, that's the core deep story. That's the core underlying framework. Um, is is about that zero sum. How do you hear it in present day rhetoric? You hear it in makers and takers, right? You hear it in uh, taxpayers and freeloaders. Uh, people just want handouts. People want free stuff. Um, there was a public opinion analysis done right before the election that showed that 75% of Republicans agree with the statement that you can't trust the outcomes of an election when millions of people will just vote for a handout, right? There's this sort of disdain and distrust of a kind of racialized other that is really a, a guiding principle. I mean, we are here this week, um, you know, in the wake of, of the death of Rush Limbaugh, who was, you know, the, the person who gave the masterclass in this kind of us versus them, degrading the other, resenting the other rhetoric. Um, and then, of course, we just had four years 
of the biggest bullhorn in the world being held by a man who saw the world in this zero sum winners and losers, us versus them way. So it's very clear to me that people with a lot of investment in the political and economic status quo, you know, a lot of you know, billionaires and their propaganda outlets and on the right, and also, you know, as I call them, the paid bullies in the in the corporate media who, you know, are themselves millionaires, but really love to gin up resentment against the idea of handouts for anybody who's struggling, particularly if those handouts are for people of color. It's interesting that you talk about billionaires and millionaires, these uh you know, propagandists, as you call them, and the billionaires in the political class at the moment, because just going back to your pool metaphor, people who could afford to put pools in their neighborhoods or backyards weren't affected by the loss of the public pool. It was poor and working class people of all races that lost out on that. That's exactly right. It's it's really the story, right, of the of the inequality era as as it's as it's known of the past fifty years, where what was once a public good then becomes a private luxury. And so the people who benefit from that upward redistribution of the basics, the basic necessities of life. Um, are, you know, not at all touched by the impact of this resentment politics. Um, In fact, you know, the more that white Americans vote for a party that, you know, promises to get tough on illegal immigration and promises to get tough on crime in the inner cities and riots, but all it does is cut taxes and deregulate, obviously that has a clear material economic interest for the winners of the, the economic status quo. We're talking with Heather McGee, author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Join us. What questions do you have for Heather McGee? Is this conversation resonating with any of your experiences or observations? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Heather McGee. She's former president of Demos, a progressive think tank. She's also board chair of Color of Change, an online racial justice organization, and author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Heather McGee, one of the most compelling, more recent examples uh, of how racism hurts us all in your book was your description of the subprime mortgage crisis. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it, this is really actually the issue that is the nearest and dearest to my heart of all the stories in the book. It's because it this story of the roots of the subprime and financial crisis uh, was the first issue I really ever worked on as a public policy advocate. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, there began to be a new mortgage product that was developed by banks, but also by a lot of non-bank lenders in an era of deregulation in the financial markets. Itself an idea, an anti-government idea that sort of was 
the political logic of it, which was sustained by sort of racist anti-government views. Um, and those mortgages were subprime, meaning they were supposed to be for people with less than prime credit scores, people with blemished credit. And that was the policy justification for them, that these are people who couldn't afford or didn't have good enough credit histories to get into the conventional, safer, uh, more affordable mortgage market. And so lenders were justified in pricing for the risk. Now, if you're a student of history, you should know that whenever you see that word risk, you should have alarm bells going off about the relationship to race because risk was the justification that the federal government used throughout the 20th century to deny entire black communities access to mortgages. And in fact, to require that any kind of financial institution or developer, housing developer that wanted to build or lend exclude black people because it would be a risk. Now this was a never substantiated link between black people and financial risk. And yet it was common sense enough to deny you know, three generations wealth of, of wealth building in America. After redlining ends, you then have deregulation of the financial markets and this new product. And it really was first tried and tested on the communities that were the least respected, the least protected, um, and, and the least um, invested in. And I went as a young advocate to many of these black and brown neighborhoods where they were middle-class neighborhoods where families owned their houses and had gotten a knock on the door from a broker saying, you know, you could really refinance this loan, roll in your credit card debt, fix the leak on the roof, send your kid to college. And one by one, those mortgages would go bad. Yes. And by bad, I mean unaffordable for the borrower and end up in foreclosure or end up in a kind of panicked refinance, but they often had balloon payments and prepayment penalties. And the reason why it was so important for me to tell this part of the story, the early part of the story, is that still to this day, the conventional wisdom is that the problem with the financial crisis was people who shouldn't have gotten credit being sort of, you know, given free stuff that they didn't deserve, right? It's actually that resentment story all over again. It was one of the things, of course, that we know was one of the um, sparking moments for the Tea Party, right? This idea, oh, I'm going to save my neighbor's house when they did something that they shouldn't have done. But at the beginning, it really was existing homeowners. And this is the key. The Wall Street Journal did a study in 2007, right at the you know end of the boom, and showed that the majority of subprime loans went to people who actually had good enough credit to qualify for cheaper, safer prime loans. Mm. The problem wasn't the borrower, the problem was the loan. The majority of these loans were for refinancing, not for quote unquote, getting people into houses. And black and brown borrowers with the same credit as white borrowers were three times as likely to get these subprime loans. By the mid 2000s, half of the mortgages in black neighborhoods were subprime, you know, irregardless of credit history. And here's where I make the link to the cost of racism for everyone. Racism in the segregation and the redlining that allowed for the targeting. Racism in the discriminatory targeting. Racism in 
the social distance that existed between borrowers and you know the banker the management at the bankers the regulators who you know i had meetings with them where we were talking about predatory lending and there was this sort of just idea that you know basically black people weren't good with money and that the market would sort of work itself out and that lenders were appropriately pricing for the risk and so there wasn't enough alarm about what was happening in black neighborhoods until basically the juggernaut kept moving and the wheels were off once it was clear to wall street how much money could be made by charging people double digit interest rates on six-figure mortgage loans you had you know, a recipe for what became the financial crash. Right, spread out across all races. And then we, of course, know how the financial cra crash hurt everyone, basically. And uh, let me go to Karen in Ventura, who'd like to join the conversation. Hi, Karen. Oh, hi. Can you hear me? I can. Hi, yeah. I, I love this woman. I love her. Um, I'm a retired accountant. She is absolutely right. And I wonder, you know, it's that old chicken and the egg thing, which came first, greed or racism? I, you know, these, these big corporations, they go to the Chamber of Commerce and they go to the Board of Realtors meetings and they find some. Karen, I think we may have lost you there, but it's an interesting uh, point she makes about what came first, greed or racism. Kay tweets, I've been seeing, I've been saying this to people for years. Racism costs everyone, including whites. Even Texas's current situation has a connection to racism. States' rights and resistance to regulation often stem from America's racist past. Any thoughts on that, Heather McGee? A hundred percent. Well, first, let me answer Karen's question. I'm sorry she got cut off. Yeah. Um, which came first, racism or greed? I do talk about this in the book, that basically the zero-sum racial hierarchy in America was created by elites in our founding economic era in order to justify stolen people, stolen land, and stolen labor. Basically, the idea that you know profit for some would be at the loss of others was true. The zero sum, the racial zero sum was true with our founding um, sinful economic system. So the greed came first and the racial hierarchy and the sort of pitting of races against one another came second. And yet I really, you know, so often we think about the financial crisis and, and you know, corporate greed in a colorblind way. You know, I mean, in, in many ways coming up as I did in the kind of progressive economic sphere, you could often talk about all these economic issues without talking about racism. You can talk about race in terms of disparities, right? It's, we know that there are disparities along all these economic issues, but people are always very hesitant to ascribe, to ascribe racism to the greedy actors. Yes. And, and, and to that I say, what is racism without greed? Um, they are so intertwined. You need, in order to really exploit someone for your own gain, you need to sever that human connection of empathy. And racism is the ready tool for that. Yes, you talk uh, about that toxic mix, yes. Yeah, um, you know, it, it really is seen in so many places in our society um, where the only thing that has ever really counteracted greed, that has ever really pushed back against these forces that want to concentrate wealth and power has been collective action, has been people organizing together, has been the countervailing force of labor unions or the countervailing force of government. And both of those vehicles for collective action, labor unions and government, are ones that in a multiracial democracy 
require multiracial collaboration. And that is why the right-wing narrative demonizes them both. And so you really began to see inequality take off when the majority of white Americans politically turned their backs on and started voting against um, the party that was still the party of quote unquote big government, that was still the party of labor union, labor unions, um, both of which had been popular with Americans until the civil rights movement, you know, once that party also became the party of civil rights. Should I answer the question about the drained pool politics of what's going on in Texas? Sure. I mean, it's so, what is going on in Texas, it's just so horrible. It just really worries me in terms of it having the makings of a, just a mass tragedy. A mass tragedy, it really is. Um, I just got off the phone with my brother who's in Austin and they're just um, so, there's, it's just cascading failures. And it really is a story to me of the drained pool at work, whether you're talking about the you know, first of all, the denial and the refusal to act to mitigate and create resiliency around what we know to be true with climate change. I include a chapter in the Some of Us about climate change, which I actually didn't set out to talk about, but the evidence just became so clear. I, I also, you know, had a my first child while I was writing this book, and I was nursing him the moment that I got the news alert that you know, of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's report that said we have 12 years to act. And I mean, it was just a visceral gut punch as I'm holding this, you know, few week old baby. And, you know, so I started digging into the data, you know, is there a link between white supremacist ideas and this zero sum and climate denialism? Um, Because Really, the sum of us is about trying to answer the question, why is our country so dysfunctional? Why can we not manage to um, have nice things? And, you know, our inability to act on climate change is one of those just, you know, most puzzling. And it's one of those issues also, you know, where people often just talk about greed, right? And you think about, okay, it's the fossil fuel lobbyists and the, all of that. And that is certainly the case. But it's also true, it turns out, that... Our climate denialist party in the United States is a party that is overwhelmingly white and where the core story allows people to minimize science, minimize risk, because they think that they will sort of always stay on the top of the economic hierarchy. Um, And so there is this link, and I, I won't go way into it because I, I do want people to read the read the book, but <laughs> really, there is this link between um, climate change denialism and, and white identity politics. Um, black, if black and brown people are 20 and 30 percentage points more enthusiastic about taking steps to address climate change. If it, if it were only up to white people, according to the public opinion polls, you know, of last summer, the latest ones that I saw before the finishing of the book, we would not address climate change at all. And that is a huge, huge problem. So first the climate change, then the deregulation. Again, I talked about the sort of racist logic of deregulation, the the go it alone, libertarianism, states' rights, um, you know, anti-federal government, when once the federal government sort of betrayed the racial hierarchy, And, you know, of course, the response from the mayor saying, you know, it's survival of the fittest, you're on your own, um, sort of demonizing people who need things to the 
way in which um, you know the Republican Party that has had 20-year rule in that state nonetheless finds some way to still blame a woman of color for their own malfeasance and incompetence. And you know, it's it is like all aspects of racism, the targets will be hit first and worst, right? The neighborhood of East Austin is go is the one you know, from my conversation with my brother just now, you know, that has the worst problems, the weakest infrastructure, the, the you know, the most difficulty in recovering right now from this, you know, ongoing crisis. There are absolutely disparities in who's going to be able to deal with the burst pipes in their apartments and, and afford to find a way to find heat and water. But it doesn't mean that the entire state isn't reeling and it isn't costing. It's, this is going to cost billions of dollars. Um, and 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 certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. It's interesting how you talk about how uh, how zero sum hits people of color first and worst. And I I'm thinking about this comment from April, who writes, "If racism hurt white people, it would have ended. Systemic racism continues <laughs> to exist because it benefits white communities." Yeah. Yeah. No, I I appreciate the question. Like, you know, I definitely know that I'm taking a, 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 um, a somewhat contrarian argument from the, the dominant paradigm of the story that we tell about racism, which is about white advantage and black and brown disadvantage. And of course, as I said, it is true, but this is the scale we have to look at it on. Are white people doing better than black and brown people in this racially hierarchical, vastly unequal, drained pool society that we have? Absolutely. Are white people doing as well as they did before we drained the pool? Where one out of three workers had a good union job and with healthcare and, um, you know, white people got to go for, to college for free on government grants um, and, you know, government support for college. Um, no, right? Um, and so the question isn't, is there still some disadvantage um, sorry, the question isn't, is there still some advantage to being white in a vastly unequal society? Absolutely. Of course there is. I think the question should be in the country with the largest economy in the world um, and with so much wealth and so much power, how are we all doing? And couldn't we all be better off if we stopped sabotaging our own success? And, and that's what I began to find in my journey to write The Some of Us, this evidence all across the country of something I, I began to call a solidarity dividend, which is the idea of these gains that could come, particularly when white people sort of reject the zero sum and link arms with similarly situated brown and black and indigenous people to fight for things that we can only win alone on our own, that we can't win alone. Things like higher wages and cleaner air and better funded schools, um, things like healthcare. Um, I tell the story of a multiracial coalition uh, that emerged to uh, overturn by ballot initiative uh, the five times vetoed Medicaid expansion in Maine, the, the whitest state in the union, um, where there was a sort of proto-Trump governor named Paul LePage, whose whole, uh, you know, rhetoric was around welfare and immigrants and drug dealers impregnating white women. I mean, it was just, you know, the worst racist rhetoric. And yet what was his agenda? 
keeping government small, tax cuts for the wealthy, um, and, and denying Medicaid expansion that was going to help, of course, in this very white state, 90% of the beneficiaries would have been white. And it was in the more diverse parts of the state that had become more diverse because of you know, immigration and, and actually refugees and immigrants from, from Africa, particularly that the multiracial working class coalition was able, able to, to win uh, and drive for, for expansion of Medicaid over the governor's veto. Well, Richard writes, I see what your guest says is equally reflected in the immigration debate, which is also propelled by race. We're talking with Heather McGee, author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And I invite you, our listeners, if you'd like to join the conversation with your questions for Heather McGee or to tell us if this conversation resonates with any of your experiences or observations or if you have thoughts on it. Does any of what she uncovered in her cross-country conversations resonate in your life? Also, what kinds of economic and social policies would you like to see local or federal government prioritize? Call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook. I'll be getting to the many calls we have right after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with economic and social policy expert Heather McGee, former president of Demos and board chair of Color of Change. Her new book is The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And let me go to caller Betty in Davis. Hi, Betty. Hi there. I want to applaud the author on her new book. Thank you very much. The reason for this call at this time is to challenge your theory about the zero-sum barrier. I'm going to tell a story, brief story, to illustrate what my challenge is. I was seated many years ago on a bus bench in Berkeley at the intersection of College and Ashby, a neighborhood in which I lived, a very comfortable, very desirable neighborhood. I was seated at one end of the bench, and and I'm a black female, and at the other end of the bench was a white, middle-aged male. He was dressed as if he lived on the street. He was visibly very dirty, 
and reeked of alcohol. And he sat there chatting to himself. I don't think he was waiting for the bus because when it came, he did not get on it. But at one point, he turned and looked at me, and he said, at least I'm not a, and then he used the N-word. That story to me underscores something James Baldwin said many years ago, that it is very important for many, if not most white people in this society, to be able to assume that blacks will always define the bottom and by doing so, assure them that they're not on it. I think there will be a tremendous reluctance to give up this very cherished idea. I'm not the bottom. Thank you for that story. I'm very sorry that happened to Heather McGee. I'm I'm sure you have a reaction because in so many ways what Betty is describing is in some ways the 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 conundrum that you realize after many years of trying to make the economic argument. That's exactly right. Well, Betty, I could listen to you all day. Thank you for telling that story with that grace and wisdom. And I completely agree. It is it is that story encapsulate encapsulates what what WB Du Bois called the wages of whiteness. It's not a material wage, right? That uh, man did not have more money than you, but he had more whiteness and therefore the status that comes from that. In the book, I, I engage with this idea thoroughly. It really is the major impediment to solidarity, the major impediment to true self-awareness and class consciousness, that elusive thing in the United States. Um, and it's that major impediment to, to fixing our economy and, and dealing with the major challenges that we face. You know, social scientists give it a bunch of different names. They call it last place aversion. They talk about group status threat. They talk about racial resentment. It really does come down to the idea that this country legislated and communicated a racial hierarchy of human value and put at its bottom a level of dehumanized rightslessness anyone in their right mind would want to work to distance themselves from. That is, that is how sort of racial formation began in the United States. And that is how waves of white-skinned immigrants learned to, you know, cling to their place on that ladder of hierarchy and, and punch and kick down often, literally and figuratively, um, in order to make sure that they were not at the bottom. This idea of last place aversion is something that is is produced by how terrible it is to be in the last place in the United States. I I talked to a Finnish um, sociologist for the book named Christy Yilha, and um, we were talking about climate change actually in the chapter called The Same Sky on, on climate and uh, there was actually a fire alarm during our conversation. We run out into the street 
And it, you know, just the shift in context, you know, made us, the conversation turn more personal. And she said, you know, when I first got to this country, I really thought for the first time, wow, I am white. You know, I said, okay, well, wow, you know, tell me more about that. Was it because there's so much more diversity here than there is in, in Nordic countries? And she said, yes, but also it was that, um, you know, the class differences are so strong. She said, you know, we have class differences in Sweden. Um, she's Finnish, but she lived in Sweden most recently. We have class differences in Sweden, but in Sweden, if you are poor, you have the right to an apartment. You, if you are unwell, you have the right to medical care. And, you know, it, it just, it's, it's just true that if you make the bottom, if you make it so miserable to go a month without a paycheck, if you make it so that, you know, you can be in Texas as millions of our brothers and sisters are, and the entire infrastructure can collapse on you and you have very little recourse, then absolutely you want to climb up and make sure that you and your family are as far away from that bottom as possible. But we don't have to have a bottom like that. That is a choice that this country continues to make with the affirmation and consent of the majority of white people who keep voting for that vision of deep inequality. Let me go to caller Gregory in Alamo. Hi, Gregory. Good morning. Um, the the link that was um, put forward by uh, Ms. McGee was something that uh, would really struck me when several years ago, back when I was in college, an economics professor um, put together the analogy of uh, racism and inequality from an economic standpoint as like, you know, a, a person as a whole, and the, the analogy being a person, a whole, the body, our society, like cutting off your arm to spite yourself mm-hmm. and, and just the harm that racism did um, to not only our society, but just but also just from a pure economic standpoint. And I just I was mm-hmm. looking forward to reading Ms. McGee's book, but that was just something that really struck me. And that was probably the one thing that most stuck with me my entire time in college, that, that conversation. Gregory, wow. thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Lois writes, thank you. This argument is the most cogent and compelling explanation of the resilience of white supremacy to the detriment of all. It makes sense in this moment of the most white male insurrectionist chant of a stolen election at the Capitol. It offers an explanation of why corporate America was happy to exploit white supremacy so that wage labor declined, deregulation increased, and everyone lost. Everyone should read this book, I Will. That said, Mm -hmm. Heather McGee, I do want to ask you what your response is to the idea that to bring up how things are racialized, for example, the climate change movement, uh, to Mm -hmm. bring up race as intertwined, to bring up white supremacy is divisive, and we shouldn't do Mm -hmm. it if we want to create cross-racial solidarity. Yeah, that, 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 mm, we've tried that. (laughs) (laughs) I tried it, right? We tried it. Um, We have, I'm joking, but I'm totally honest, right? We, We have tried that. We have tried to counter with economic self-interest arguments uh, to white Americans that, that don't talk about race, that are kind of colorblind, The problem is that means that the people who want better outcomes for everyone and want more unity are the only ones not talking about race, right? Because the other side is talking about race constantly, explicitly in the Donald Trump version, implicitly in the Mitch McConnell version, in the Paul Ryan version, right? In the Mitt Romney version. I mean, you really do have this constant barrage of demonization, of scapegoating, of racialized narratives, of 
resentment that are just, they're already, they're amplifying the zero sum story. They're, they're, they're heightening um, white anxiety about demographic change. And so if you don't contend with it and give people a way to understand what they're hearing and what they're feeling, right? They, you know, when I was in Maine, it was really clear to me that, you know, the story that, you know, your sort of average white Mainer had about the decline of their community. I was in Lewiston, Maine, which is sort of like a quote unquote dying mill town, you know, one of so many across the country where the factories are gone and the better days are behind us. It was very clear that the better days were before the 1970s. And what happened in the 1970s? The country became at the federal level more progressive on issues of race. So it can feel like the federal government traded away white prosperity for black and brown inclusion. And that's not crazy to make that link. But what's the missing part of the story was that it was done with the, the movement that you know, took over to change the economic bargain, to, to change our tax and labor and trade policies in a way that concentrated wealth and sort of traded away middle-class manufacturing jobs was one that was a rightward shift in our politics, one that was pushed by a very white corporate elite and one that the only people who were you know, fighting against it were actually these vehicles for collective action. Um, trade unions and, you know, a Democratic Party that at least for a time, you know, was was very much trying to be a countervailing force. So I also want to make it really clear, and I think I do in the book, that um, this is not a completely partisan issue that Democrats and Republicans have both on the wrong side of both the economic issues and the race voting. Hmm. And again, we're talking with Heather McGee. Her book is The Some of Us, and she's also the former president of Demos and a progressive. She's also board chair of Color of Change, an online racial justice organization. And I want to read, you're listening to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. I want to read this comment from Marjorie. It's a bit long, but Marjorie writes, I attend... I attended a California public high school where a lot of high-performing white kids from affluent backgrounds decided to attend a community college before transferring to a UC just because they wanted to save money on those first couple of years. My kids attended an ethnically diverse California public high school at a time when all students were encouraged to prepare for and apply for four-year colleges, and efforts were made to provide assistance to help low-income students of color find financing. I'm not sure those well-meaning educators appreciated just how predatory the student loan system can be. And I've got to believe that predation lands more heavily on students of color. Does your guests mm-hmm. have insight on that? I know you do, Heather McGee, because you write about this. So what's your response to Marjorie here? Absolutely. Um, after we worked on the issue of, of you know, predation in the mortgage market and the credit card market at Demos, we, we moved to the student loan market. This is, for me, one of the you know, least well understood examples of the cost of racism on everyone, Um, the way that we moved from a government funded system of public college, obviously, those of you listening in California know very well, um, you know, the the California um, model here that was, you know, not just in California, but many other places where government at the state level paid most of the cost of college and then the rest translated to modest tuition bills, $50, $100, that were then paid and then some, allowing for living expenses to be subsidized by a federal grant, not a loan that's interest bearing. And 
it to me is is no accident that that was the formula for public college as a public good that was a worthy investment back when the public who was going was white and as the population that was going to college became more and more diverse the idea of funding affordable college fell out of favor with lawmakers the idea of funding mass incarceration grew into higher and higher favor. And so what that has meant has been this system where the country has said to young people, you need a college degree in order to have access to a middle-class job, but we are gonna price that college degree out of reach for working in middle-class families. And instead of grants at the federal level, we're going to offer interest-bearing loans. We're gonna cut about a quarter per dollar on average per pupil uh, on, on terms of state funding and shift the burden onto private families. Now, what has that meant for white students? It's meant that white students who go to college, 63% of them are borrowing it's the drained pool for them as well. But of course, as I said, like with everything with racism, it hits the target first and worst. And so black students and first generation students of color are the ones who have to borrow the most, the most often, and who have the hardest time paying it back because of job discrimination that still exists in the labor market. And because, because of the way that history shows up in your wallet, black and brown families have less money to pay um, in order to support their children going to college and so they have to borrow more. That is why it is imperative as a racial equity issue that we cancel student loan debt. It is one of those targeted universalist issues that would be great for white working and middle class people as well as black and brown working and middle class people. It's a political winner, even though I will note, again with the racialized politics, that there is about a 20 percentage point gap in enthusiasm for the idea of debt-free college, of a return to debt-free college and debt cancellation um, among white and black and brown people. And we heard President Biden say yesterday when asked at a CNN town hall how he would enact a $50,000 student debt forgiveness plan. And he said, I will not make that happen. He's prepared to write off 10000 but he doesn't know if he has the authority to do that. We're, we're running out of time, but I do just want to get your quick reaction to that and, and what you think of Biden as somebody who is writing executive orders on racial equity, whether or not he, he fully understands this argument that you're laying out here. Um, so I'll say to his credit, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden used the language of the zero sum and said that racism cost everyone uh, in the, his first address as president on race in signing those racial equity executive orders. He has talked about the need to put racial equity at the center of his uh, presidency in a way that is not zero sum and that benefits everyone. And that is phenomenal. I was, you know, he could have knocked me over with a feather when I heard him speaking in that way. It's really, really great. Um, but the idea that we have to means test everything, which is coming out of the White House in, you know, both thinking about potential uh, bipartisan uh, negotiation on the, the survival checks and in the idea that we should sort of limit and have a more modest um, uh, debt cancellation is, I think, a reflection of the drained pool politics of the idea that we, you know, we, we have to sort of ratchet down public benefits. We can't have these widespread public goods. I think it's really important that people recognize that the debt for diploma system is a failed and racist experiment, racist in impact, if not an in intent, and we have to put an end to it. It's no way to run a country. 
Well, Todd writes, thanks for your sobering clarity. Clearly, it's policy and law. The only good news is policy and law can be changed for the better. Leave us with one thought about a way out of this. And, you know, he said it very well. I am a fundamentally hopeful person because decisions got us into this mess and better decisions can get us out of it. Um, I, I, in the book, um, you know, really talking about this idea of a solidarity dividend of what we can gain when we come together across lines of race to champion the public good. Um, In many ways, some people who read this book have reflected back to me that it's actually very hopeful, even though it's frustrating uh, and sobering to see how racism is interwoven in all of these issues. Because if you just sort of pull the thread of racism, you know, the the barriers to making progress yeah. on all of these issues from climate to housing to education to poverty wages and collective bargaining can be uh, made a lot easier. And so I am hopeful that this skeleton key is something that's going to unlock more prosperity for everyone. Well, Heather McGee, thank you. It was great to talk with you. Thank you. Heather McGee's book is The Sum of Us. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.